0: Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. If you have your copy of God's Word, please join me. In the third chapter of the book of Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, God's revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory, we come to chapter three. We've been studying the seven churches of Asia Minor. and We come today to the church at Sardis. And so let's read our text verses one through six, Revelation three. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds that you have a name that you are alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die for I've not found your deeds completed in the sight of God, my God. So remember what you've received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they're worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. May the Lord add his blessing, the reading and hearing of his word. Now we have... Looked at a number of churches so far. First of all, we saw a cold church, the church at Ephesus, who failed to flame the fire of love. And though they were doing some great things externally, their motivation had grown cold. We saw a persecuted church, the church at Smyrna, who was commended for their faithfulness by the Lord, but told harder times were coming. We saw a worldly church, the church at Pergamum, who was almost indistinguishable from the wicked pagans around them. We saw a church at Thyatira who had become totally complacent and become just like the world. And today we come to, I think the harshest rebuke that we find among these seven. Jesus says to the church at Sardis, you're dead. Have you ever been in or visited a dead church? It's hard to define, but you know it when you see it. I remember once years ago, I was invited to preach um, in a church friend of mine had become the pastor there. It was his first pastor. He wanted me to come and speak to the congregation, and I did over a four-night period. And at the end of the week, I said to him, brother, you have your hands full here. I've never met a group of people who are more indifferent to the word of God than these people. Um, By their body language, by their attendance, by their conversation, they simply had no interest in the things of God. And it wasn't very long that uh, something happened. There was a disagreement between that young pastor and uh, the other leaders of the church, the deacons. And there was a meeting called to decide who was right and who was leaving. And at the beginning of the meeting, my pastor friend laid down a a very large Bible on the platform and said, I'm happy to meet about anything and discuss anything that's going on in the church. So long as that we all agree that whatever this word says is what we're gonna abide by. And did you know that deacon body voted against those rules? They said, we will not abide by that. He called me the next day and said, what should I do? I said, brother, that church ceased to be a church long ago. A church that does not submit to the word of God is a dead church. And, and I think this is what we have here at the church of Sardis. It's a dead church. But the city of Sardis was 35 miles south of Thyatira. It was at the crossroads of the interior. It was known for its wool trade. lot of sheep in that part of the world. And they had perfected a red dye. And those woolen garments that were red from that dye were uh, much in demand in the ancient world. For many years, this city was the capital of a region known as Lydia. It was built upon a high precipice, a sheer cliff 1500 um, feet above the valley floor. And it seemed impregnable. And because it seemed impregnable, Twice in the long history of this city, it was captured and devastated because of their complacency. And we'll talk about that in a moment. It was destroyed by a large earthquake in 19 AD, and the Roman government built it back bigger and better than ever. There's absolutely no mention of the founding of the church at Sardis in the New Testament. We can um, guess, probably, that some disciple of the apostle Paul went out from Ephesus and planted the city. We simply... Don't know. Well, let's look at our text. Chapter three, verse one, to the angel that is the pastor of the church in Sardis, right? He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. This is the God who knows. And it might be confusing to some people to hear that title of the seven spirits of God. We first saw it back in chapter one, Jesus describing himself. The seven spirits of God harkens back to the old Testament book of Isaiah. And in Isaiah, I believe it's chapter 11, um, the prophet Isaiah speaks of the spirits of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, uh, the spirit of truth. He, he's not saying that we worship a seven headed monster. He's the number seven, of course, in Jewish way of thinking was the number of completeness, of wholeness. And so he's speaking there of the total sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ who sees and knows everything. In fact, he says there, I know your deeds. Remember, this is this deep sort of experiential knowledge. That is, he knows everything about their history up until this point, that you have a name that you're alive, but you are dead. That is, um, in our modern terminology, they they were the living dead. They were walking around sort of as spiritual zombies. They had bodies. I take it they had a building they were meeting in. They they might even had a regular ministry schedule. They even had a pastor, we're told here, but spiritually, the light was on, but no one was home. They were spiritually dead. And he says, I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Now, now, what's going on here? Why would God say that the church at Sardis was dead? He really doesn't give any more description than that, than that they are dead. So I think we're left to do a little investigation work, reading between the lines. I think there's a hint in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 6, when Paul was writing to the young pastor, he said this, she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead while she lives. And perhaps that is the logical conclusion of immorality. And I think that's the case. Remember that a couple of these other churches, Pergamum and Thyatira, that there was this declension that was happening. They were moving down and further away from fellowship with the Lord. And and the logical conclusion of accepting immorality in the church is ultimately that church will die. And I think here's the logical conclusion of that. We find in the church at Sardis, there was likely sexual immorality there. That is, they were acquiescent to the culture all around them. Uh, There's some other possibilities that that I want to explore as well. I think one of the um, characteristics of dead and dying churches is that their tendency to rest on past achievements. There certainly must've been some glory days back in the church at Sardis. They hadn't always been dead. Jesus says, I know your deeds. That is plural, that in the past, they must've been an active and a um, a real church. And we've all been in churches like that. Uh, The walls are covered with black and white pictures of the glory days. And then you go into where people are meeting today and nothing. And then I think that's related to a word that I mentioned earlier called complacency. Remember I said that the city of Sardis had been captured in warfare twice because of complacency. They began to trust so much in their geographical location, 1,500 feet above a sheer cliff. They thought no army could scale this wall. We're safe. And so they stopped defending that cliff. They would only defend the other side of the city that was accessible through a road and they didn't worry about the backside because of that cliff. And do you know what happened? The Persians scaled those walls in the night and took the city almost without a fight. Later on, hundreds of years later, another um, army did the same thing. So twice in their history, they were defeated because of complacency. I think this is what Jesus is referring to when he says, wake up. Their pickets had falling asleep on the job, spiritually speaking. And he's calling them to wake up. I think another possibility because of the financial wealth of this city, it was a crossroads city. It was very wealthy that perhaps they had begun to stress the material over the spiritual. It wouldn't surprise me at all if they had a grand building. Remember I told you that an earthquake had destroyed the entire city just to 50 years so earlier, it's likely that they had a, a really nice building that they had built. Maybe that was their pride and joy, but there seems to be no emphasis on what really matters, which is spiritual wealth. But I think the real problem we can read between the lines very easily is that there was a loss of authority as it relates to the word of God. So look what he says in verse three. He told them to wake up and remember what you have received and heard." And what had they received and heard? They had received the gospel, the content of the gospel, and they had heard it through the preaching of faithful preachers. He's speaking here of God's word, 2 Timothy 1.13. Paul again, writing to the young pastor, Timothy says, follow the pattern of sound words you have heard from me. He says to Timothy that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable, isn't it, for individuals and for the church. But apparently the church at Sardis had ceased to value the word of God. They might have been going through the ritual of reading it occasionally, but certainly there, there was no expectation that they would obey the word of God, even though the word clearly says be doers of the word and not hearers only. And so because they had allowed the church to die, God is coming in judgment. And that's our second point, the God who judges. Verse 2, he says, Wake up, strengthen the things that remain which are about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour. I will come to you. This is God warning of impending judgment. Now, before judgment or punishment comes in a judicial system, there has to be an indictment. And here is the indictment against the church at Sardis. He says, I have found your deeds incomplete. Now, I told you when we started the study of revelation, there's a lot of parallels between the book of revelation and the book of Daniel. And we just studied the book of Daniel. If you remember in chapter five, very famous episode in the book of Daniel, there is a new king on the throne. His name is Belshazzar, and he throws this wild, drunken party. And in the midst of this party, God appears as a disembodied hand and he writes something on the wall. And you remember what he wrote? Well, the king couldn't read it, so he, they called in Daniel to read it and interpret it. And it said, mene mene tekel uparzin. And Daniel interpreted that to say, weighed, weighed, found in the balance, short. That is, God has weighed you in the balance of his judgment scales, and you're lacking. That is almost identical. What Jesus says to the church at Sardis, your works, your deeds are incomplete. It's not enough. You've fallen short. You are lacking. And because you're lacking, he says, I'm going to judge you like a thief in the night. That's a term that's become part of our English vernacular. It's taken from the Bible. We find it in Revelation 16, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Peter 3. Scripture says, the day of the Lord, which is the day of judgment, will come like a thief in the night. What does that mean? Remember, he's already told them to wake up, right? They're asleep, they're sluggish spiritually. Well, that's generally when thieves operate. Uh, My five-year-old daughter yesterday. Uh, we were talking about the garbage cans being outside need to be put up. And she said, that yeah, we have to put them up because raccoons are nocturnal. <laughs> and I said, where did you hear that word? Well, she knew that uh, raccoons do their work at night. Well, most thieves are nocturnal, aren't they? They do their work at night. They break in where people are unsuspecting or vulnerable. But Jesus says when he comes to judge, it's going to be at a time when you're not expecting it. Just like those Persians snuck up that cliff in the middle of the night and conquered the city, Jesus is coming, and he's going to judge this church. He says, I will come against you. Now, that may be the most frightening sentence in the Bible, uttered by Jesus Christ to individuals and to a church. I will come against you. That means certain death, doesn't it? Because the scripture says fellowship with the world, which was their problem, they were not distinguishable from the lost and dying world around them, is enmity with God. They had declared themselves enemies of God. And just as I told my pastor friend, when his deacons voted against the word of God, they invited God out of the church. And what they invited was judgment. And such is the case here with the church at Sardis. But that may seem hopeless, doesn't it? It's not. Here's the amazing thing about God. He is the God who not only judges, he is the God who resurrects. In the midst of all of this, there is incredible hope. He says, wake up, remember, repent, strengthen what is about to die. Now, he's already pronounced them dead, but he's saying it's not hopeless. Now, in our case, when, when we go um, to the hospital and the doctor comes out to the family in the waiting area and says, I'm so sorry that we did all we could, but your loved one died. At that moment, that's the end of hope, right, as far as them living in this life. Not so spiritually. It puts me in mind of, the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament. You remember chapter 37? God took Ezekiel, this great prophet, in some vision or some supernatural way, and he placed him in a valley which was filled with dry bones, that is skeletal remains. Now, when you think of uh, hope being gone, when you see a body that's decomposed to the point where it is a, brittle, chalky skeleton. No doctor in the right mind is going to give anyone hope that this might live, right? And so what does God say to Ezekiel? He asks him a question. He shows him this valley of dry bones and says, can these bones live again? And Ezekiel didn't want to say because he was in the presence of God. He says, oh Lord, you know. And God did know. And right there with Ezekiel watching, God began to reanimate these dry bones. He began to put flesh and tendons and ligaments and organs and skin until all of these dead bodies lived. Well, the point is that God is a God who resurrects, isn't he? He doesn't do it only in visions, though. He does it literally. He did it a number of times in the Bible. I'm thinking of the widow of Zarephath's son I'm thinking of the widow of Nain's son. I'm thinking of Jesus' friend, Lazarus. And of course, I'm thinking about the Lord Jesus himself, who on the third day rose victorious from the grave. He resurrects, literally, he resurrects individually, spiritually, doesn't he? What does the apostle Paul say of our spiritual condition before we were saved? In Ephesians chapter two, verse one, you were dead in trespasses and sins. You see, that, that's the spiritual, God's spiritual assessment of every lost person. He doesn't say, look, you got some areas of your life you need to work on. <laughs> he doesn't say, you know, you really need to clean up this one habit you have. He says, you are dead in trespasses and sin. That means totally unable to respond on your own. So this has to be a miracle work of God. And friends, would you agree with me that every time a lost person is born again, it is a miracle work of God? It is not evidence of that person's inherent, in, in, inherent ability to believe. So yes, God resurrects literally our bodies, and he will. He promises to do that one day. He resurrects us spiritually on an individual basis, but he seems to indicate here that he's interested in and he's in the business of resurrecting entire churches. I've seen it. I've seen churches that most people wouldn't give a nickel, would be around in six months, and the Lord breathes new life into those people, and they get on fire for the Lord, and they go on and serve the Lord for many years. The Lord is a God who resurrects. But friends, here's the case individually, and it's the case corporately. Regeneration and revival will not happen without repentance. Remember what I I tell you, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing the same way over and over and expecting a different result. If this church kept going down the path they had been on for a long time, they couldn't expect revival. You don't drift or float into revival. There has to be repentance. There has to be heart change. And that's what he calls them to. He says, remember what you have received and heard and keep it now. Now they had probably been reading the scripture. They weren't keeping it. And here's the most important word, repent, turn around. That's all the word repent means. It means turn around. I'm going in this direction and I go in the other direction. It's a change of heart that leads to a corresponding change of behavior. God promises to resurrect that which is dead when there is repentance. But he's also a God who rewards. Look at verse four. Remember in all of these chapters, there's been this conjunction and in almost all the churches, it's been a bad conjunction, the word but. So he'll say, well, here's some things you're doing well. You're active, you're ministering, but church at Ephesus, you've left your first love. In this case, it's very positive for the church at Sardis. He says, look, you're, you're a dead church, but you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Here's God's promise. As we've seen these five letters, there's a pattern, isn't there? He introduces himself with some title of his deity, in this case, the seven spirits of God who has the seven stars, and then he gives them either a commendation or a rebuke or a combination of the two. In this case, it's mostly all rebuke. You're dead. He warns them that if they don't wake up, if they don't repent and change, he's coming in judgment. But then he always ends with prophecy, doesn't he? And a promise, because he's good and merciful. And his promise is is several fold here. He says, look, there's a few people in your church that are still faithful. I've never been to a church, including the one I described earlier, where, where there weren't a few Christians left. There's always God's remnant. Wherever we go in the world, there's a faithful few. And he says to those faithful few, He says, you've not soiled your garments. I think saying the others had. In the Bible, when we see soiled garments, it has to do with moral conduct and character. That is, they have remained faithful and pure, unstained by the world. They will walk with me. I take that in eternity, in my kingdom that is to come. And they will do so in white garments. The white garments in the book of Revelation has to do those whose sins have been forgiven. These are truly born again people, and uh, they are worthy. And I think we need to be very careful there. They're not worthy in and of themselves, are they? None of us are. Romans three twenty three says we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They have been made worthy by faith and trust in Christ alone. That's all they're depending on. And so I said it's very difficult to define what it means to be a dead church, but This is what I settled on this week after rolling it over in my head over and over. Here's what I think the, the definition of a dead church is. A dead church is a group of people claiming to be serving Jesus who is controlled by the unregenerate. That is, they had allowed their church to become full of lost people. And those lost people were now even leading the church. They were the majority. There were a few faithful ones who who were truly saved and born again, but they were being drowned out by the vast majority who did not even know the Lord. But he says, here's some promises to those who do know the Lord. You will walk with me in glory. You'll receive white garments to identify you as mine forever and ever. I will not re- erase your name. There's the book of life. The book of life is where all of God's elect's names are written and he promises he will never blot us out. They're going to be found there on that day. And then he says, I will confess that person's name before my father. Remember what Jesus says, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my father who is in heaven. That is when you die, I take it. Jesus is going to identify with you and say, this one's mine. But you know what he's going to say to those who had a name, they had a reputation for being alive, but they were truly dead? He talks about it in his gospels. He says, I'm going to say to those people, depart from me for I never knew you. He's not saying they were truly saved and lost their salvation. He's saying they never were born again. And those people who never gave any evidence of being born again had been allowed into the church, not only allowed into the church, they had been allowed to influence the workings of the church until they had controlled it. And Jesus declares this church dead. And we better learn the lesson of this church. In fact, look at verse six. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches, plural. This is an open letter to be read to all of the Lord's churches so it won't happen to them. And I think there's some very clear application here. How can we identify a dying church? How can we make sure it doesn't happen here? I I read a book one time years ago and it talked about the phases that most churches go through before they die. And the first phase was motivated phase. Have you ever been in a new church start, a new plant? Everybody's excited, right? They're they're evangelizing. They're welcoming new people all the time. If a visitor came through the back door, they'd break their leg running over each other to greet them. But over time, the church goes on. They move into the second phase, which is the maintenance phase. By that time, they have built a big building they've got to pay for. And so they've got some programs in place. They've probably hired staff to do a lot of the things people were doing voluntarily before. And so they've got to keep things going. And so they've got to maintain what they have. And that generation dies off and uh, that next generation that comes on, they didn't build the building. They didn't evangelize the lost. They're just uh, keeping it open sort of as a museum. It's a monument to their parents and grandparents. That's the church with the black and white pictures on the wall, it's always pointing to the glory days. And the last phase, unfortunately, of this kind of church is what he called the mausoleum phase, when it's a cemetery. They might have the reputation, as the church at Sardis did, of being alive, but the truth is, they're dead. And so what should they do? Well, we should take the, the Lord's advice, wake up. Strengthen the things that remain. What remained was they still had a Bible. They still had a few people in the church who believed it. Listen to those people. Put those people in leadership. Have real standards of church membership, which begins, by the way, with a valid testimony of faith in Christ alone. And so that's why when someone joins our church... We don't immediately welcome into the fellowship. We hear their testimony multiple times. We we want to hear about not what they did 30 years ago, but what's their walk with the Lord like today? We ask them to go through a class and, and hear what this church is about and what our values are and how they're going to be held accountable here. And then sometimes weeks later they're brought forward uh, to become members of the church. And so we have to have that standard that if someone joins our church to the best of our ability, and we're not God, they have a clear testimony of faith in Jesus, not only a one-time experience, but they are walking with the Lord presently. And we shouldn't put people into leadership just because they're a good old boy, or or they've come to church fairly faithfully for 10 or 15 years. That's never been a qualification for leadership. If we're not careful, we'll leave that motivated stage and uh, we'll just sort of maintain. And when that next generation comes on, they're not even interested in maintaining. It just becomes a museum or a monument. And the next thing you know, the church is dead. Friends, I don't want to be a part of a church like that, do you? I'm grateful every day. When I wake up, I get to be a member of a church that's alive. It has the Spirit of God living here, but that doesn't mean we're perfect. Doesn't mean that we don't always need to be guarding against decline. We have to be motivated the way our ancestors were 138 years ago when this church was started. They moved to this community for the express purpose of reaching the people that the Lord would send here with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You do know that's why we're here at this corner, right? It's not to build a grand building and say, look at us. It's not to hire as many staff members as we can. It's not to accrue as much money as we can in the bank. The Lord Jesus Christ put First Baptist Church of Keller in this spot, on this planet, in this epoch of history to reach a lost and dying world for Jesus Christ. To be salt and light in this community. And yes, the Lord has been incredibly gracious to bless us with a rich history, these 138 years, but I am convinced that our greatest years are before us and they will be before us so long as we don't become complacent. As we don't start... So as long as we don't stop guarding our walls. So as we don't start saying... This couldn't happen here, because it certainly could, and it has in many other places. And it's my prayer that when the Lord returns for his church, he will still find a church in Keller, Texas, serving him. Let's pray to that end. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for this clear warning through the example of the church at Sardis of what can happen when a church becomes complacent they had a history. The Lord Jesus said, I know your deeds. You have the reputation of being alive, but the truth is you've been dead a long time. You're just a spiritual zombie walking around. You have a building, you have a pastor, probably had deacons, maybe even had a beautiful building, but spiritually they were dead. The Father's always, there was that little fateful remnant Father, I'm thinking of some churches even in our area that are within months of closing their doors forever. I know that you have your people there. I pray you'd stir them up, Father. I pray you'd send a, a revival and awakening, lead their pastors with great wisdom. May our church be able to support them in some way. And Father, I'm most concerned though about this church, First Baptist Church of Keller, that this not happened here. So Father, um, The way it could happen is if we would grow complacent, begin to rest on the laurels and the achievements of past generations and look to old, grainy photographs rather than to the future of what you might have for us here. Father, help us always to remember that we're not here to be a museum or a monument. We are here to be a lighthouse and a beacon of truth in a lost and dying and dark world. Father, I pray that would always never be the case. And whatever good you accomplish through us, whatever soul is saved, whatever ministry is accomplished, we'll be very careful to give all the glory and honor to the Lord Jesus to whom it is due. We pray these things in his name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast.